The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 64, 1 through 9, and chapter 65, 17 and 18. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you are angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name and rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Richard. My name is Lee Eric Fesco and I am the director of discipleship here at at Christ Prez. My wife, Tracy and I, we have two boys, 11 and 13, and really they're, they're very good boys. Uh, they're both very good students and we're, we're very proud of them. But sometimes school is school and it all throws us a uh, curveball. It's just part of the learning process. Both our boys are expected to do what their teachers ask them to do, specifically in the way of homework assignments. It's their job to make sure they understand the assignment, to do the assignment properly and ask their teacher questions if they're not sure what the assignment is or what's being asked of them. It's part of their job as, as a student. Now, sure. Once in a while, it's happened to both of them at different times in their schooling experience. They'll bring home an an assignment and they'll ask for for help, but they don't know what to do. And and generally speaking, if the problem is in the mathematics department, I'll be the one to lend a hand. So they present me with their problem, and then they explain to me that they don't know what to do. And I do my best to explain to them how to solve the problem. Now, much to my surprise, It seems in more than one way, they have changed math. I I didn't know it was possible to change math, but but that's what they've done to us. 
The way that I solved a problem when I was their age is now different than the way that they solve problems. Nevertheless, if they don't know how to solve the problem, we're just gonna go with the way that I know how to solve the problem, right? So what's happened a time or two, they'll, they'll, they'll take their, their uh, math problem back to their class. Their teacher will look at it and it will be marked wrong. Apparently I didn't do their homework properly. <laughs> My kids will then bring the homework assignment back to me and then insinuate that I've messed up their homework. Dad, it's your fault. My fault. This is my fault? Who's, whose homework is it again? Yes, but you said you knew how to do it. I do know how to do it. No, it's marked wrong, Dad. And, and there we go round and around. Neither one wanted to take responsibility for the error on the assignment. Now, here's the thing. We're not alone in this kind of behavior. This is, this is something that a lot of us have a tendency to do. It's, it's so much easier to look at the person to the right or to the left of us and say, it's your fault. You're in error, not me. You did this, not me, right? In fact, this was the behavior of our first parents. It goes all the way back to the garden. We're going to go back to the beginning today. We're going to go back to the garden. That's, that's where we're going to start. And then we're going to look at our text again. And then we're going to finish in the garden too. Exactly the same place where we started. So we're going to go to the start of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, he asked them this. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1. And the woman replied with, no. He actually said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Which, which wasn't quite, quite right. God never told Adam, don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. Isn't it interesting how they try and improve upon God's law? But still, the serpent said, relax, will you? You won't die. You won't die. If you eat it, then you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. That's why he doesn't want you to eat it. And then she saw that the tree was good, saw the fruit on the tree was good, and liked the idea of being God. And what happened next? They ate of the fruit. They did exactly what God told them not to do. You see, this is what sin is. This is what sin is every single time. It's a little declaration that says, I'd, I'd like to be God. I'd like to be the one in control. I, I don't like being told what to do, so I'd like to play the role of God. Every time, every time that's what it is. Every time that's what sin is. When, when God confronted them about what they had done, do you know how they responded? The ownership of our actions tends to diminish at this point. Who, me? It's not my fault. No, I didn't do it. Adam said, Lord, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fr fruit. So really it's kind of your fault, you see. And Eve said, oh, well, you really can't fault me either. It was a serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. It could have happened to anybody, see? but it certainly wasn't my fault. You see, this is our natural impulse. Our natural reaction when it comes to sin, our reaction is not to deal with it, rather find plausible deniability. But owning up to our sin, no, we don't want to do that. We may own up to our actions, but we certainly don't want to call it sin. In the passage that Richard read for us a moment ago, we're seeing the same sort of behavior. The people of God who always seem to have a difficult time being faithful to the one true God, as much as he would discipline them and bring them back in, no sooner would he bring them back in that they would turn away from him again. Over and over and over again, this is what they did. So God gave them over to their adversaries and they were being exiled from the land that God gave them. They were being removed from the promised land. This is unthinkable. Their captors came in and to them, this wasn't fair. This is the height of injustice. 
Not only was their city destroyed, but their adversaries came in and did unimaginable things. They killed men, women, and, and children, and all kinds of atrocities. And they, they took them into, the, into captivity, and, and many were exiled, taken away from their homes. And so this is what we're reading in the first few verses in Isaiah 64, through the prophet Isaiah. The people of, of God are crying out to, to him, God, go, go get them. Go get them. These people are awful. Make, make your adversaries know who you are. Let them know who you are. Don't let this kind of behavior stand from these awful people. And there it is. It's awfully easy to point out sin of other people. Don't let this kind of behavior stand, Lord. It's awfully easy to notice the atrocities that people around us are committing, isn't it? But what about us? What about us? So if we were to make a simple outline of our text in Isaiah today, it would go, it would go something like this. God, those people over there are awful. They're awful people. But two, so are we. We are too. Number three, but he fixes it. Number one, Lord, those people over there are awful. Number two, so are we. Three, he fixes it. You see, what we're wrestling with today is this idea of sin, how we handle it, how we react to it. And like we pointed out already, when we sin, when we see sin in other people, when we see the atrocities that others commit, what's our reaction? Our natural reaction is to push it away. Oh no, not me. I'm not like that. Point that spotlight somewhere else. But what ought our reaction be? Here's the thing. Sin, sin makes a criminal of all of us. Sin makes a criminal of all of us. Even when we point out the sin of someone else, do you know what the immediate whiplash response is? When we point out the sin of someone else, it only points right back to us. Here's how that works. If I'm making the suggestion that my neighbor is not measuring up, that he's inadequate, that he's, that he's deficient, what's the underlying commentary there? They're not measuring up, which must mean that what? I am. I am measuring up, but am I? I saw my, my kids doing this just last week. They, they were running around chasing each other with this rolled up newspaper, just smacking each other on the bottom. And then they turn around and say, Dad, he's hitting me on the bottom. But didn't I just see you doing that five minutes ago? What's different? Is it? Is it really that different? You're doing the very same thing. But here's the thing about the behavior of our children. It's only a caricature of our own behavior. We do the very same things. We operate in the very same manner. Again, we're great at seeing other people sin, not so good at seeing our own. Do you remember the prophet Nathan's interaction with King David? After David had sinned with Bathsheba, this was the wife of his friend Uriah, he took his wife, took Uriah's wife, and then he killed Uriah. And so Nathan confronted the king over his actions, but Nathan didn't immediately accuse David of his wrongdoing. Instead, he told him a story. He told him about a, a rich man who had many sheep, and in spite of the fact that he had so many sheep, it didn't stop him from taking the one and only sheep that this other poor man had had, a sheep that he loved and cherished, but the rich man took the sheep from him anyway, even though he already had plenty of sheep of his own. What do you think about that, David? When David heard the story, he was outraged. And he said, who was that man? Find me that man. I will not put up with this kind of behavior in my kingdom. David was, was outraged with the hypothetical sin of, of someone else. It's easy to see someone else's sin, right? David didn't get it. It was going over his head. Feel the outrage, David. Feel the burn. I'm glad you're getting mad about that, David. You know why? Because that man is you, David. You 
are that man. When Nathan revealed this to David, that he was the man that metaphorically took the sheep from the poor man, then David immediately realized the gravity of his sin because he saw through the perspective of someone else's sin, not his own. But it awakened David to his own sin to the point that he went on to repent for his actions. See, this is the effect that it should have on us as well. When we see the sin in other people's, what should our response be? Sure, you can be disgusted by their sin. God is repulsed by sin, but it should also awaken us to our own sin and make us realize we're no different. We're we're no better. We're capable of the very same sin and often do the very same thing. In the book of Ephesians, the the apostle Paul is painting uh, painting for us a picture of the church, what the church should look like and how the church should function and, and behave. But before he details all the imperatives, the commands that we should embrace as a church, he reminds us what Christ has done for us first. He gives us the indicative. He tells us about the power that enables us to operate as the church should operate. He tells us this, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may may boast. You see what the apostle is telling us? Even your faith, even the very thing that gives you the impulse to do good and not to sin, even that is a gift of God. Even that was given to you as a free gift. So so how should that change our perspective when you see your brother or your neighbor engaged in sin? It should cause you to say, that could be me. If not for the grace of God, that could be me. I could be doing the very same thing, if not for the grace of God. But even further, what does the Bible call us to do when when it's, uh, it's our own brother? our brother or sister in Christ engaged in sin or in the midst of sin? What's, what's your response then? In Galatians 6, verse 2, once again, the apostle Paul is imploring us to do something as a body of believers. He tells us this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. It's, it's awfully easy to hear that and think, oh, sure, I can bear my brother's burden. If he's sick, I'll, I'll bring him a meal. Or if he needs a shirt, I'll give him the shirt off of my back. If he needs a job, I'll give him a job. But those are all good things to do. And the Bible tells us to do those things. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor to the exclusion of no one. But what is Paul telling us to do right here in Galatians when he says, bear one another's burdens? Do you know what he's talking about specifically? You have to back up to verse one to realize what he's saying in verse two here. Verse one. Chapter six, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him and in a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. And then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see what this means? To bear the burden of your brother's sins, that means you take the weight of it. His sin becomes your sin. You own the sin as much as he owns it. It's not that your brother is caught in sin. It's his fault he did it. No, that's not what he's saying here. It's not that your brother is caught in sin. It's that we, we are caught in sin. We are caught in transgression. When we go back to our passage in Isaiah, do you see what he does here? Isaiah, I mean, he's a prophet of God, right? He, he, he's, he's chosen, he's set aside, he was commissioned to be the, the very mouthpiece of God. He was purified and cleansed to do the job that he was called to do. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter six and God sent him out to be his mouthpiece. And here in Isaiah chapter 64, verse three, look what he's saying. Look how he turns the corner after the people are pointing out the atrocities of their neighbors, of their adversaries. He says this, you did awesome things that we did not look for. 
God, our adversaries are awful, but look, we're no better. Don't you think it would have been easy for Isaiah to say here, uh, God did awesome things and you did not look for them, right? Wouldn't it have been easy for, I'm a pretty good guy. Hey, prophet of God, I'm a pretty good guy. No, he owns the sin. He owns the sin of his people as his own. They're awful, but let's, let's be real. We're no better. Verse four, from old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. Not even, not even me, not even Isaiah. Verse five and following, behold, you were angry and we sinned. Our sins, we have been in a long time and shall we be saved? Isaiah puts himself right in the middle of the sin with God's people. He's bearing the burden of their sin. Why? Why is he doing that? Why does he throw himself in the midst of everyone else's sin? Because he knows something about himself. You can read about that too in Isaiah chapter six. When placed adjacent to the holy, holy, holy character of Christ, he knows he has no place to boast. He goes on to say in verse six, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isn't it interesting in the midst of Isaiah's confession of sin that he makes mention of righteousness? He's confessing sin, yet he brings up righteousness. Okay, our righteous deeds, what gives? He's confessing the sin of their righteousness. How is that a sin? What does God have against our righteousness? It was, it was only a couple of Christmases ago. Um, I received a gift from my niece. It was a, uh, a package of Old Spice men's products. It was a, uh, a body spray, which is of note, uh, shampoo, deodorant and some other stuff. And the specific variety of these old spice products was called Swagger. I don't know what I found more amusing, getting the gift itself or the fact that my niece went and picked this product out and thought, Swagger, Uncle Eric, of course, perfect match. If there's anyone I know with Swagger, or if there's anyone who needs Swagger, it might be me. I don't know specifically who this product is marketed towards, but I feel I may have aged out of it. I'm sure it's a fine collection of products in and of itself, uh, but again, maybe I'm not the target market. Nevertheless, it was a gift. Uh, nevertheless, it was a gift and I kept it and I decided it's the thought that counts. I'm gonna keep it here. I, I kept it under my sink and maybe one day I would, I would end up giving it to one of my boys. One Sunday afternoon, I went out for a walk with a dog and we took our time. It was a nice, warm day. We took the long way and I worked up a good sweat and then we got back and, and Tracy was right there waiting for me at the door. And she explained to me, hey, we have to leave in like five minutes for Connect Group. Are you going to be ready to go? Well, it never takes me long to get ready. So I was sure I could get ready soon. But yes, I did work up a bit of a sweat. There was no time to shower. If only there was something in between showering and doing nothing at all. Some of you foresee where this is headed. Well, I wonder what this swagger body spray will do for me here. Let's give it a whirl. So I put on by what any measure was a light coat. And, and that should be a good indicator right there that this is not headed in the right direction. So body spray plus a new change of clothes, good to go. When I came downstairs and stood in front of Tracy, her first comment wasn't, great job, you got ready fast. Her first comment wasn't, you look great, we're late, let's get going. No, that wasn't her first comment. Her first comment was, what is that smell? I looked at her, I said, swagger. 
we're running late, it's time to go. Nevertheless, Tracy said to me, no, you need to get in the shower. I said to her, no, we don't have time. No one will notice, no one will care. It's not a big deal. It's, let's just get in the car and go. I'm certainly not taking a shower and that's final. And so as I was in the shower, I, it, it immediately occurred to me, I'm, this is, I'm not kidding you, it immediately occurred to me what a picture perfect picture this is of sin by way of righteousness. I mean, I'm not kidding you, look at this and imagine with me now, again, the swagger in and of itself is probably a fine product, right? But how clean am I if I'm applying this body spray over sweat, over body odor, right? Swagger plus body odor. This is what made Tracy turn up her nose at me. That was the lethal combination right there. Isaiah 64, six, once again, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. How could a righteous deed be polluted? How could doing the right thing be so off-putting? How could it be a stench in God's nostrils? That picture we have of covering up body spray or body odor with body spray, does that gross you out a little bit? Good, it should, it should. Now you have just a hint, just a mild, mild hint of what Isaiah is talking about. In my attempt to cover up my filth, I created something repulsive. It's not that God doesn't like righteous deeds. God, God likes righteousness. He's into righteousness, okay? It's not a righteous deeds that he has a problem with. He likes righteousness, but when we try and use that righteousness as a covering of our mess and then call it sufficient, that's when he turns up his nose. That's when he's disgusted. Do you, do you know this is what irritated Jesus so much in his dealings with leaders of the day, the religious leaders? It wasn't that they were out committing blatant sin. It was, that their deeds of right, it was their deeds of righteousness that he was so disgusted by. It was the fact that they thought they were good enough that they could uphold the law on their own and somehow that would earn capital and right standing before God. And, and then they were peddling this false religion to other people, telling him this is the way to do it. And he wasn't impressed. He was disgusted. He was disgusted by it. It was far from sufficient. It was, it was body spray over body odor. If there's something that we're guilty of as a, as a church, not Christ Pres, but as a church at large, the larger church, it's probably this. We're, we're often pretty good about staying out of trouble. I mean, we don't engage in the big sins, right? We come to church, we read our Bibles, and we do all those good things. And again, those are good things. But when we try and hold that up like a trophy and hope that, that, that it somehow earns favor with God, that's when God tells us, no, that's gross. That's disgusting. You need to be washed. You need to be totally washed. Your sin doesn't need to be covered up with the things that you deem to be good. You don't, you don't offset the bad things by doing good things. Your sins need to be removed, totally removed. Let's, let's go back to the garden. Let's, let's take a look at what Adam and Eve did right before they tried shifting the blame around to everyone but themselves. This is Genesis 3, 6 to 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Did you catch that? What do they try to do to cover up their shame? To cover up their sin? They, they took it upon themselves to, to cover it up. Can you imagine that scene? What that might have looked like? Quick, go get me some leaves. Hurry up. I'm, I'm sure this will be fine. This will cover everything. This will cover all the, all, the, all the sin. You can't see my sin. You can't see my shame. This will cover it up just fine. Nothing to see here. It's fine. It's good. I've covered it. You can't see anything. And then when God came 
came upon them and, and called out for them, what did he say? Hey, nice job with the fig leaves. Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that. After he confronted them, and even after they tried to shift the blame around, and even after that, God, God cursed the serpent and pronounced the fall of man, and he would tell them to leave the garden. When he sent them on their way, did he send them on their way with their fig leaves? No, he didn't. No, their attempt to provide a covering of their sin and shame wasn't sufficient. So before he sent them on their way, he said this, Genesis 3:21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife skins, garments of skins, and clothed them. He covered them. He clothed them. Don't, don't miss what just happened there. The Lord made garments of skins. That means God had to provide and make a sacrifice so that Adam and Eve's sin and shame could be covered properly, sufficiently, completely. He fixes it. He fixes it. Can I do you a favor? Can I, can I summarize the entire Bible for you right now? Really quickly, can I tell you what the overarching message is that we have bound up for us in the Bible? And it's a message that's written over and over and over again all throughout the Bible, starting in the opening pages of Genesis and all the way through the last pages of Revelation. It's this, it comes down to this. We can either try and impress God with all the good things that we can do and try and show him how good we are by sewing up a great set of fig leaves. Look, God, somehow I can cover up all the bad things I've done. This will make up for it, won't it? We can try and do that, or we can rely on the sacrifice that he provides for us. We can use our own righteousness or, or someone else's. Someone else's righteousness who takes his record, takes his sacrifice, takes his righteousness and applies it to you. That's what it comes down to. That's what the whole Bible comes down to. You live in your righteousness or his. You can try and impress God with your righteousness and somehow earn enough capital, which is what every other religion in the world asks of you, and maybe you'll get there. Maybe you'll have some kind of indicator that tells you, great, now you've done it, you've arrived. You've sowed the perfect set of, of fig leaves. Unfortunately, that's what Isaiah is trying to tell us here. There's no amount of sowing. There's no amount of sowing you can do. We're all unclean, so you can keep trying to sow or you can just believe that the garment that Christ himself provided for you is enough. That's all you need, nothing else, just, just open hands. Jesus, your record of righteousness applied to me with reference to me. But now, oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. We are his people. He will not remember iniquity forever. I want you to know that there have been occasions when I'm doing my kids' homework that uh, I arrive at the answer that the teacher is not agreeable with, and I have, on occasion, written a note back to the teacher. I promise I'm nice. I, I'm very nice about it. I've said something to the effect of, I, I, I don't understand why this is the answer. Can you please explain it to me? Love, Dad. See, I, I've arrived at the point whereby I'm, I'm helping one of my kids, and I've taken ownership of their problem. I'm not just going to turn it back over to my kids and say, good luck, I don't know what she's talking about. It's yours. You see, I, I take ownership of it and then I can solve it. 
Then I can provide for them an answer so that they can answer the rest of the problems. But that doesn't happen unless I take ownership of the problem first. Remember just a moment ago when we spoke about not just identifying your brother's sins, but, but owning them? Taking them on as your own? Don't you see what that's a reflection of? Do you see in whose footsteps you're walking in when you do that? This is how he fixes our problems with sin. He doesn't just identify our problem, he, he owns our problem. He takes it as his own. He takes your criminal status and puts it upon himself. That's what the cross was all about. He took your criminal's nature, your criminal status, and, and put it on himself. Notice the transaction that occurs here. Notice how you're made right with God. Notice what takes place. Yes, he provides you a covering. He provides you a covering for your sin and shame, but what happens to your sin? Where does it go? Does it just, does it just vanish? Does it just go away? Does he really just not remember it anymore? Let's just pretend it didn't happen. Is that what he does? No, he can't. He can't do that. He can't pretend sin never happened. We don't want him to do that. We don't want him to just forget about it and pretend that it never happened. What kind of God would he be if he didn't get angry with sin, with injustice or abuse or whatever? Whatever the infraction may be, because he is a God who's perfectly just, not just just, but perfectly just, that means he must apply the proper punishment for every act of treason committed against him, no matter how big or small. He can't just ignore and pretend it didn't happen. So no, our sins don't just vanish. So where do they go? It goes to Christ. He takes your sin. He owns your sin. The payment that was required for sin so that a perfectly just God could provide justice wasn't just dismissed, it was placed on Christ. He, he takes our sin, he owns it, and in return he gives you a righteous covering a righteous covering that you can't add to because it's completely sufficient, completely satisfactory on its own. And because of that, you are then eternally, irreversibly accepted by God the Father. It's the miracle of the Father's handiwork. When we contemplate the garden and read the narrative on how sin entered the world, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating. Why did he allow that to happen? But don't you see, when we read the very same narrative, he also real, we also realize that as sin is entering the world, the Father is simultaneously revealing an answer for it. And at no point are we ever left without a Savior. And though we struggle with sin, now he gives us a Savior who can fix it, who has fixed it, and will permanently fix it, as Isaiah tells his people, and by extension he tells you and I, for behold, I create new heavens, and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. From the garden, right from the beginning, he told us he would fix it. He's using people like you and me to be reflections of his sacrifice and push back the darkness of sin. And as we do that, remember, because of his sacrifice, because of his offering, because he took our sin on his shoulders and gave us a righteous covering that one day we'll have a seat at the wedding feast of the lamb and rejoice with him that our struggle with sin is not remembered, nor will it come to mind. Just as this table is reminding us and allows us to proclaim this very truth, new heavens, new earth, no more sin. This is our foretaste. Please join me in prayer. Father, we're, we're tired of sin. We're tired of how sin affects us and, and drags us down. 
We're people who seem to have no problem pointing out the sins of others, yet so reluctant to see our own sins. But thank you. Thank you that you've removed the burden of sin from us. Thank you that your son has taken it from us and and washed us of it and, and given us his robe of righteousness, which promises a seat at your table where the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Thanks for the work of Jesus Christ who loves us so. And it's in his mighty name that we pray and for his sake that we pray it. Amen.